Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani, and in this episode, we are going to talk about one of the most iconic objects in Netherlandish history, a foreign item and a living thing, but something that from the 16th century until today has been perpetually immortalized in the Low Countries across fields such as art, economics, and fashion, as well as many, many other actual fields. Acres and acres of colourful fields. In many ways, the story of this one thing is the story of how the societies of the Low Countries developed and shifted from their medieval inheritance and into the modern era. So what might this wondrous commodity be? Well, dear listeners, it is of course, the Mighty Tulip. Yes, in this episode, we are going to dig up the bulbs of the past, trim the stems of historical myth and hopefully emerge with a lustrous vase of understanding as to where the tulip came from, how it became infectiously vogue in the Dutch Republic and what place it holds in modern calculations of identity and economics. Of course, to help me tend this garden, it is now time to bring co-host Julian Smith to the microphone. Hello Julian, if you could be any type of tulip, which would you be? Hello, Joe. Hello, listeners. I would be the Tulipa Fosteriana Albert Hein, named for the founder of the Netherlands' most successful, yet not that great, supermarket chain. How about you? Ah, Julian, of course, I would be a Tulipa Silvestris, the wild tulip. Why don't you tell us a bit about them? Today there are around 75 species of the genus Tulipa, which belongs to the Liliaceae family. Although the numbers for speciation are contested and range from around 50 to over 100. The number of registered varieties or cultivars of these species is more than 3,000. 
The native center of origin for Tulipa, where they came from, is a pretty huge landmass indeed, stretching from the Balkans in the west, with a caveat that we will return to shortly, to northwest China in the east, in an expansive band the width of which pretty much corresponds with the 40th parallel north of the equator. The Tian Shen mountain range that forms part of the Western Himalayas is the heartland of tulip diversity. So if you were on a game show and you were asked where do tulips come from, your best chances of being correct would be to say either Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan. In this region, researchers in the 70s identified 63 wild species of Tulipa liliaceae. In regard to the caveat I mentioned before, for a long time it was claimed that native tulipa did not exist west of the Balkans, but this view has been amended following discoveries of the wild tulip, Tulipa sylvestris, the Joe tulip, growing native in the Mediterranean, Cyprus, Greece, the Iberian Peninsula, and North Africa. You can't keep a wild tulip down, and according to researchers, this is the only tulip species that came into northwestern Europe via a different path, being from the Mediterranean going south-north, rather than via the Persians, Seljuks and Ottomans in the east heading west. Regarding this southern outlier, as mentioned by Anastasia Stefanaki, Tilman Walter and Tinder van Andel in their scientific paper, Tracing the Introduction History of the Tulip that Went Wild, Tulipa Silvestris, in 16th century Europe, quote, it had neither the long pointy petals that were favoured by the Ottomans, nor the big cup-shaped flowers that became fashionable in the West. But it found its way to European gardens, escaped them, and became the only successfully naturalised tulip species in Europe. End quote. But let's not jump ahead of ourselves. By the end of the first millennium of the Common Era, the tulip became a favoured and iconic object within Persian culture, which, given that the Achaemenid Empire stretched into Central Asia two and a half thousand years ago, is not that surprising. Anyone who had travelled to the far reaches of that empire at the correct time of year would have borne witness to the vast array of brilliant multicoloured flowers bedecking the slopes of the area that was known then as Bactra. Persian poets celebrated and immortalized them in words, as with those of Omar Khayyam in the 12th century. Quote, As then the tulip for her morning sup of heavenly vintage from the soil looks up, do you devoutly do the like, till heaven to earth in virtue, like an empty cup? End quote. The tulip's reach for the sun is the equivalent to the physical supplication of a human showing sufficient devotion and prayer. There was a sacredness, beauty, and connection to divinity enshrined within the tulip's meaning, and this would endure, adapt, and proliferate across borders and cultures until this very day. The first tulip species emerging from the Asian steppe are speculated to have been brought towards Anatolia, where Turkey now is, by the advance of the Seljuk Turks, who decisively took control of the region in 1071. Cultivation had already been happening in earnest and would continue as the rum sultanate of the Seljuks made way for the rise of the Ottomans. The love of the tulip within the regional cultures remained. Suleiman the Magnificent's love of tulips saw them becoming a common feature of Turkish gardens, while a famous account of his successor, Sultan Selim II, in the 1570s, sees him having ordered 50,000 tulip bulbs be planted in his palace gardens. In 1453, the Ottomans took over Constantinople, and, with this as an interface of cultural exchange and conflict, it was therefore also around this time that Western and Northern Europeans first came into contact with the tulip. The first account has long been held to be that of diplomat Auger Ghislain de Buzbek. We're just going to call him Buzbek. 
the German emperor's ambassador to the Turkish sultan, and so he has long been credited with bringing the tulip into Europe. In letters that described his time in the East in the 1550s, but which were written decades later in the 1580s, he wrote, quote, As we passed through this district, we everywhere came across quantities of flowers, narcissi, hyacinths, and tulipans, as the Turks call them. We were surprised to find them flowering in midwinter, scarcely a favourable season. The tulip has little or no scent, but it is admired for its beauty and the variety of its colours. The Turks are very fond of flowers, and although they are otherwise anything but extravagant, they do not hesitate to pay several aspers for a fine blossom. These flowers, although they were gifts, cost me a good deal, for I had always to pay several aspers in return for them. End quote. It wasn't long before tulips were being grown in European gardens too. Although the temptation has long been to pinpoint an exact time and avenue of arrival, such as just saying, Buzbek did it, the reality is that bulbs probably made their way via multiple different means. And let's not forget the wild tulip. In 1549, German naturalist and medical man Johannes Kentmann produced the Codex Kentmanus, a book in which he recorded details of different plants in a garden at Padua and around Italy. In this are two illustrations of tulips, both Tulipa sylvestris, the wild tulip which turns out to also be native to parts of Europe. His drawings do have anatomical errors, and in his uncertain description he writes, quote, The Turks call this plant in their barbarous tongue, tulipa. What it is, I do not know. End quote. He refers to the flower as tulipa turkica, a tip of the hat to the Turkish influence in spreading tulips, even though the one he had drawn was the only one not to have come to Europe via Turkey. He also says that the name Chulipa refers to a certain hat, known as a Dalmatian cap, which the flower resembles once its petals begin to turn back. Another theory is that the word tulip comes just from the word turban in Turkish. As it is, it is the name that would take the flower forward into Europe. By this stage, being the middle of the 16th century, there was a large number of natural scientists emerging around Europe, intellectualizing, writing, theorizing, studying, and sharing knowledge around plants and animals, all of which was heightened due to European incursion on the so-called New World, which saw boundless items of exotica finding their way into the hands of countless fascinated Europeans. Kentman loaned his manuscript to one of his correspondents, Swiss botanist Conrad Gessner, who copied it and also leaned on Kentman for help with his own work on natural history, a book called Historia Animalium. It was Conrad Gessner who was the first to famously describe a tulip in Europe that had come from the east, so not the wild Tulipa sylvestris. Visiting the town of Augsburg and the house of local magistrate Johann Heinrich Herwart in 1559, he saw and described a red tulip, which he called Tulipa Turcarum, and described as, quote, flowering with a single beautifully red flower, large, like a red lily, end quote. It is worth mentioning, though, that this description was produced two years after the event. So as mentioned before, it has long been assumed that the source of these flowers in German lands was our old mate Buzbek, sending bulbs over from his posting in the Ottoman Empire. 
Of this, however, Anne Goldgar, in her seminal book, Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age, writes that, quote, Although Buzbeck was clearly interested in gardening and did send back bulbs and seeds, we cannot be sure either that he was responsible for the first tulips in Europe or that the tulips in Augsburg were in fact the first. It is evident that tulip bulbs were making their way to Europe by a variety of routes and methods as trade in the Levant flourished in the mid-16th century. End quote. For instance, we know the French diplomat Pierre Bellon was already growing flowers in his renowned garden in France way before this. In 1553, six years before Gessner's description, Bellon had referred to the Lille Rouge that grew in every Turkish garden. So we cannot pinpoint a single entry point for tulips into Europe. It was not long though before these red tulips were being grown in more and more gardens across Europe, much as they had come to be in oriental gardens during the preceding centuries. This red tulip, which Gessner described and later drew while visiting the garden of the immensely powerful and wealthy Fugger family, was most likely Tulipa suaviolens, which is thought to be the ancestor to Tulipa gessneriana, from which the majority of modern garden variety tulips, being those sold en masse in the Netherlands every year, originate. This species would come to abound in an area that up until this time had absolutely nothing to do with tulips. There is a good origin story for the arrival of tulips into the Low Countries. A botany enthusiast in Mechelen called Joris de Rye passed by the house of a fellow merchant who had received a parcel of bulbs from the east, mistaking them for an edible, I don't know, type of Turkish onion or something. He fried them up with oil and vinegar and chowed down. Don't know if you know this, but chula bulbs aren't that tasty. He spat them out and threw the remaining uncooked ones out in the garden. Our botany enthusiast, Joris de Rye, recognizing them for what they were, rescued them. This is a neat and tidy story and may well have happened, but if so, it is one of countless stories in which the Low Countries became the new hotspot for the flower that was taking over Europe. This story comes to us from a man named Carolus Clusius, who was corresponding with Joris de Rye, as well as many others. Clusius, more than any other person, became the central figure in the emergence of tulips into the Dutch culture scape. Charles de Clou, a.k.a. Clusius, was a phlegm who was born in Arras in 1526. Arras being in the county of Artois, which, although in France today, was, at the time of his birth, in the possession of the Holy Roman Emperor. Coming from a privileged family of the lower nobility, he was given a good education, although through his university career he never quite pinned down one particular focus. He went from law to theology and philosophy, which he studied in Wittenberg, Germany, before moving to Montpellier in France to study medicine. Along the way, Clusius became extremely interested in and knowledgeable about botany and plant cultivation. This was a pastime that was very much coming into vogue across the European continent, with many botanical gardens and publications emerging to fuel a veritable revolution in observational knowledge about plants. 
From the upper classes down, in palaces, universities, and church grounds, countless people with the available time and money started collecting, cultivating, and importantly, sharing seeds and bulbs. People who shared this interest became known in Dutch as liefhebbers, literally meaning those who have love for something. Clusius became a botanist of great renown. He also showed over his life that not only was he very good at cultivating plants, but he was also very good at cultivating relationships with many different male and female leafhebbers. He nurtured a bountiful vine of correspondence and botanical knowledge that grew wider and wider as his study and then career took him to more and more places where he met more and more people. Clusius's first employment, probably sometime in the late 1550s, early 1560s, brought him to live near Bruges. There exists from this time a set of watercolour paintings of Tulipa Gesneriana, which were produced for his patron there, and it is suspected that he was involved in the production of these paintings. While this doesn't indicate that he had become necessarily inflamed by the tulip, we know that it was on his radar. In the 1560s, he was also employed by the Fugger family to tutor one of their sons, which took him on a field expedition to Spain. We also know from Conrad Gessner that the Fuggers had tulips in their gardens. Another patronage took him to Mechelen to design the exotic garden of his friend Jean de Brancion. It is possible that he was already in possession of tulip bulbs by this stage, as only two years later comes the first mention of the tulip in his correspondence, when one grateful recipient thanked him for the gift of a bulb, saying, quote, I hope it comes in colours. God bless me to live so long that I can see the flowers. End quote. In 1573, Clusius landed a huge job as the director of the Imperial Gardens in Vienna. He was also the Emperor Maximilian II's gardener until the Emperor died three years later. His son and successor, Rudolf II, sacked Clusius, but nonetheless he remained in Vienna, publishing his first original work around the time he lost his job. This book, which is titled in Latin Rariorum Aliquot Sterpium per Hispanius Observatarum Historia, or in English, The History of Some Rare Races Observed in Spain, which is mostly just called Flora Iberica because it doesn't take so long, includes as an appendix the first European detailed description of a tulip. He must have been long familiar with the plants by then. When he had first arrived in Austria, his path crossed with that of the imperial ambassador in Constantinople, Buzbeck, who was due to return to France. Buzbeck gave Clusius seeds from tulips, and over the following years he continued to study and cultivate them, while also expanding his network of leafhebbers, as well as his sources of tulip seeds and bulbs coming from the Orient. To quote again from Anne Goldgar, quote, It is clear that a constant stream of plants, seeds, and bulbs was coming into the imperial court from Turkey, and that Clusius was redistributing these through his correspondence networks. These exchanges continued after Clusius lost his job and returned to Frankfurt, and indeed in Leiden, and for the rest of his life, end quote. Clusius was like a 16th century Johnny Appleseed, just spreading his seeds everywhere he went, and to everyone he was writing to. As botany became ever more respected and ingrained within the cultures of humanist Renaissance Europe, botanical gardens and departments of botanical study emerged from within university institutions connected to the study of medicine. There was definitely a bit of a craze going on, although not everybody was into it. Flemish humanist philosopher Justus Lipsius said of the botanical leafhebbers in 1583, quote, 
They do vaingloriously hunt after strange herbs and flowers, which, having gotten, they preserve and cherish more carefully than any mother doth her child. These be the men whose letters fly abroad into Thracia, Greece, and India, only for a little root or seed. These men will be more grieved for the loss of a new-found flower than of an old friend. Would not any man laugh at that Roman which mourned in black for the death of a fish that he had? So do these men for a plant. End quote. In 1587, the University of Leiden requested permission to establish a Hortus Academicus, which was granted in 1590. When it was opened in 1593, they appointed as their Horti Prefectus, Europe's by then most famous botanist and man who was living in Frankfurt, growing plants and being constantly requested and sometimes harangued for his bulbs and seeds, Carolus Clusius. This coincided with a definite shift in the nature of tulip bulb and other collecting, pastimes which had been relatively niche, enjoyed by a group of impassioned leafhebbers, were also becoming popular enough for economic exploitation. It is not that flower traders or bloomiston had not existed before. Leafhebbers had long bought their stock from such traders. It is more that the general interest in flowers, particularly tulips, was branching out into different reaches of society. The tulip was coming to represent high social stature and mobility. Middle-class artisans and merchants, already well tapped into networks of exchange, took the opportunity of adding another commodity to the list of stuff they sought to make profit from. The financial opportunities in tulip trading was definitely not lost on leafhebbers, such as one of Clusius's network, who remarked of one bulb that, quote, if this bulb would continue to flower like this every year, it would be of great value, end quote. Bulbs and seeds were shared less and less and rather traded more and more, early into his tenure at Leiden, so still nearly 40 years before the famous tulip mania, which we will get to. Clusius observed a changing nature of the interest. He was constantly asked for goods and his gardens were broken into on numerous occasions and bulbs stolen. This was not only happening in the northern Netherlands, wherein Harlem became the contemporary hotspot of the flower trade, but also in the southern Netherlands and in France and Germany also. Clusius's life pursuit had left its little corner of exclusivity. He was, to put it mildly, not amused. Quote, This pursuit will in the end be cheapened, my dear Lipsius, because even merchants, yes, even artisans, low-grade laborers and other base craftsmen are getting involved in it, for they can see that rich men sometimes hand out much money in order to buy some little plant or other that is recommended because it is so rare, so that they can boast to their friends that they own it. To hell with those who started all this buying and selling. I have always kept a garden, sometimes for my own pleasure, sometimes so that I might serve my friends who, I saw, took pleasure in that pursuit. But now, when I see all these worthless people, sometimes even those whose names I have never heard, so impudent in their requests, sometimes I feel like giving up my pastime altogether. End quote. 
In light and Clusius became more possessive about his bulbs, refusing to sell them, most probably because he so disliked the spread of botanical passion to be on the limits of the exclusive and civilized group of leaf hebbers that he had long cultivated. He was also probably sick of being robbed. In Vienna, Frankfurt and Leiden, his gardens were frequently trespassed upon, bulbs ripped out of them. In 1596, he lost over a hundred bulbs and considered not having a garden at all. A lot has been made of the criminal distribution of bulbs from Clusius's garden and that these bulbs were the progenitors of the modern tulip industry. Like all other outlandish myths in tulip history that seek to chisel out finite explanations for how the tulip became so ingrained in Dutch culture, this is probably overkill. The fact is that garden thefts were rampant everywhere. Golgar relates a story that following one occasion of being robbed, one of Clusius's many correspondents, a woman named Marie de Brimaud, offered him the use of her garden, her dogs, and a guard to protect his bulbs and all catch the thieves. None of these measures, however, prevented her garden itself from also being ransacked in successive years in 1602 and 03. The fact is that there was now a market for tulips, and while Clusius did so much in helping their distribution among fellow leafhebbers, driving the push for knowledge and pleasure and understanding amongst an exclusive group, he was also living in a rampantly mercantile society whose middle-upper classes were putting their fingers into many pies. Tulips became one of those pies. Not a tulip pie, though. Don't make a tulip pie. Clusius died in 1609 at the ripe old age of 83, his life having reflected the transformational times in which he lived. Although not a commoner himself, during this time, common and affluent people across Europe were taking deep interest in collecting, understanding and sharing passion for different items and objects. He was at the centre of that for botany, and his legacy would live on in our understanding and appreciation of the tulip. Amidst this general air of cultural fascination with the exotic and interest in natural sciences, the spread of fashionable flowers was lubricated by an opportunistic middle-class mercantilism. Tulips became a symbol of one's social status and prosperity. However, unbeknownst to anybody at the time, tulips were also susceptible to a certain virus. People didn't know what viruses were, so whilst it made the plant sick, it also made tulip flowers extraordinarily beautiful, and that is what the people wanted. Sick, beautiful flowers. The virus itself was discovered in the 20th century. It is carried by aphids, and it infects the plant, causing stunted growth and retardation of propagation abilities, meaning that after a few generations, it will kill off a line of bulbs. It also suppresses the plant's anthocyanin, which provides the outer layer of colour in the flower. This means that streaks of the base colour, either white or yellow, break through the outer layer, creating amazing flamed and colourful effects. In his description of the tulip in Florica Iberica, Clusius had described a variegation of certain flowers. They became known as broken. In his second publication in 1585, he showed an understanding that, although broken flowers were beautiful, the plants were not well. Quote, Any tulip thus changing its colour is usually ruined afterwards, and so wanted only to delight its master's eyes with this variety of colours before dying, as if to bid him a last farewell. End quote. 
So it was clear to botanists from those early days that broken tulips were unhealthy, but to leafhebbers and the widening circle of people taking an interest in the exclusivity of different tulip cultivars, they were the ones that produced the most magnificent and eye-catching colours and patterns. As the commercialization of flowers grew, this was another factor that added to the growing popularity of tulips, which in turn saw the prices of bulbs go higher and higher, leading, as it would happen, to a speculative economic bubble burst that would go down in history with the hyperbolic and over-emotional name of Tulip Mania. We'll be back after this break. Tulip Mania is the most famous and still referred to tulip-based event in European, if not world, history. A market price bubble that exploded when the prices of tulip bulbs fell from the rare air into which they had ascended. Prices had been rising for years, but ended up dropping in the first week of February 1637. Almost immediately, the whole thing morphed into legend. Through song and poem, story and warning, tulip mania, as it came to be known, was said to represent the foolishness of frivolity and the frailties of fashion. Tour guides still walk, boat and bike around cities like Amsterdam and Harlem today and tell tales of the madness that gripped an entire people in their lust for beautiful tulips, of those who spent as much on one tulip bulb as it would cost to buy a house, such that when, suddenly, at one auction, when nobody made any purchases of flowers being sold at these astronomical prices, it all came crashing down and everybody went bankrupt. A lot of that is myth, as laid out evidentially by Anne Goldgar, who we have referred to a lot in this episode. Her 2007 book, Tulip Mania, Money, Honor and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age, was written on the back of years of archival research that nobody else had done up until that point. We have mainly leaned on her work in this episode because, frankly, it blew everything else on the topic out of the water, and in the words of one peer reviewer, instantly became a, quote, standard reference for all historians whenever they deal with this episode in Dutch financial history, end quote. Following centuries of apocryphal amplification, both in popular and scholarly circles, Goldgar's argument is that the crash was neither as widespread or drastic as the narrative has always insisted. Rather, the event shines a greater light of understanding on the complexities of Hollandic societies at the time, such as that there was a shift in cultural development in the ways that people engaged with art, nature and money, and that socio-commercially, small-scale artisanal and middle-class family-rooted trade networks that crossed and communicated across different industries were at the centre of an event that was neither manic nor brought the Dutch economy to its knees. As we saw earlier, the trade in tulips, as well as other flowers, had moved out of the hands of leafhebbers by the late 1500s. By the early 1600s in Holland, it was also being conducted through these social trade networks by people involved in other industries like cloth merchants, bakers and innkeepers. This was a highly commercialized society in the midst of an economic boom and at a time in which high social standing and esteem could be exhibited through things like cabinets of curiosities. 
It was all about the ownership of things that were rare and or beautiful. In this context, tulip bulbs that were different, or which, say, every now and then got an unknown virus and began showing off all kinds of wonderful, colorful, and unusual traits, fit rather nicely. As Joost van Raffelingen said in 1618, quote, Here in this country, people value most the flamed, winged, speckled, jagged, shredded, and the most variegated count for most. And the ones that are the most valued are not the most beautiful or the nicest, but the ones which are the rarest to find, or which belong to one master, who can keep them in high price or worth. End quote. That last comment was a scenario which many who cultivated rare tulips faced. If they sold their bulbs at a high price and put them out on the market, their price would drop because their numbers would increase out of the original grower's control. Over the years leading up to 1637, there were many conflicts about tulips which made it before notaries and mediators, as there were about many other trade goods and commodities too. Of course, being a seasonal product, much depended on what time of year it was. Tulips flower for a few weeks in spring and also produce bulbs underground. General practice is to then lift the bulbs in summer and store them, replanting in autumn and letting the cold winter ground kick off their growing process for the next spring. With a decent-sized trade emerging around tulips and people growing them in large quantities, they were bought and sold while the bulbs were still in the ground. There was obviously a lot of opportunity to make money in this field, and there was clearly a large range of different people involved, from genuine leaf habits to those simply in it to make a profit. For instance, one man named Cornelis Double was accused of much misdealing by eight Bloomerston, including the selling of bulbs that he had drilled holes into, thus preventing them from ever producing anything. In February 1637, the prices of tulips dropped dramatically, meaning that many people in these intercoursing networks found themselves getting wrapped up in legal processes to try to either recoup or avoid paying sums of money. If the archival evidence is to be relied upon, it was by no means everybody and it did not really extend beyond Holland and the flower selling centres of Harlem and Amsterdam, although a counter-argument to that is to say that relying on written evidence neglects the lower classes. Many of the exchanges of tulips had taken place notionally rather than actually. Agreements had been made about stock and payment, but for many, they neither lost nor gained. These deals simply were not done. There was certainly an increase in contested issues about tulip bulbs in the latter stages of 1636, as prices skyrocketed and people failed to deliver on bulbs that had been sold. And then in February 1637, the prices plummeted, but no one really knows why. The problem is that there's basically no evidence for exactly what transpired, other than a derisive pamphlet called Varmont en de Harchud, which, though critical, also cannot explain the cause of the drop. In this pamphlet, one character says, quote, Where it comes from, people scarcely know. It falls like a downpour in the summertime. End quote. This is also the same pamphlet from which we get the story about an auction in which a sale was not made. The news of this auction, the character says, quote, was like a running fire through all the collegian in the whole town. The next day, everything was at a standstill, end quote. Goldgar warns us, though, we should really take this with many grains of salt. 
It was this pamphlet and other contemporary works which paint a far more dramatic picture of the crash that have fed the mythologization of it into the cautionary tale of legend that it became. One contemporary, Stephen van der Lust, tells us that everybody, quote, pious and impious, thieves and whores, Harlemers and Amsterdamers, end quote, had been buying and selling tulip bulbs that lay underground. He specifically lists people such as chimney sweeps, noblemen and farmers having done this, although in the archival evidence, nobody with any of those professions is named as having been involved in this so-called tulip mania. A century after the events, writers used these pamphlets to reinforce that proverbial message which they wanted to get across. Quote, Through all of Holland, the trade was practiced. Old, young, woman and man, daughter and serving maid, farmer and nobleman, yes, letter carriers, shippers, messengers, turf carriers, chimney sweeps, bought tulips, everyone left his work, end quote. A later 18th century book, which was extremely influential by Johann Beckmann, turned this into, quote, Oft did a nobleman purchase of a chimney sweep tulips to the amount of 2,000 florins, and sell them at the same time to a farmer, and neither the nobleman, chimney sweep, or farmer had roots in their possession or wished to possess them, end quote. See how history works? It's just a long tale of he said, she said. Goldgar's work has transformed how tulip mania should be looked at. She also makes the argument that the mythology of the event has been so enduring because it provides observers as a referential warning to their own societies. Tulip mania is the standard by which to guard against our tendencies to frivolity, greed, and speculation. The subprime mortgage market crisis in the United States, which led to the 2008 global financial crisis, has been compared to tulip mania, as have cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin. Perhaps the most interesting twist on this in recent times has been an enterprising flower-growing company in the Netherlands, which, amid soaring energy prices at the end of 2022, teamed up with a Bitcoin mining company and began using heat generated from Bitcoin mining servers to warm their greenhouse. Not only did this save them costs from natural gas, but it also earned them money through both tulips and Bitcoin mining simultaneously, flying in the face of economic doomsayers old and new. We will finish today's episode with a story about perhaps the most fascinating tulip to have bloomed in the 17th century Dutch Republic, one which was not a flower at all, but rather a man named Dr. Nicholas Tulp, Nicholas Tulip. Just like the humble tulip flower comes in a stunning array of varieties, Nicholas Tulp was a man with a seemingly endless array of talents, being variously a physician, anatomist, and surgeon, a passionate art collector, as well as Amsterdam city alderman, magistrate, and mayor. Given that this incredibly influential Amsterdamer chose to bear the flower's name as his own, it feels pertinent to go on a brief diversion away from the botanical side of this story and more towards this flesh-and-blood tulip in today's episode. Nicholas Tulp was born on October 9th, 1593, in Amsterdam. He was the fourth child of Peter Derksen, a successful cloth merchant, and Grietje Derks Pullenburg, a woman from a well-to-do family. At birth, he was given the most typical of Dutch names, Klaas Peterson, meaning Klaas, Peter's son. Given his family's fortunate financial position, at the age of 17, young Klaas was able to move to Leiden to study medicine at the university there, 
Leiden was the only university in the Dutch Republic at this time, and while there, he studied under some of the most renowned teachers of his time, including a man named Peter Pau. In 1596, Pau had had the first ever anatomical theatre in the Netherlands constructed, in which he was one of the first people to publicly perform dissections of human bodies in the Netherlands. Coincidentally, Pau himself was also a keen botanist and had taken over the role of prefect of the Hortus Botanicus in Leiden after Clusius's departure. We can safely presume young class watched on keenly as his plant-loving mentor sliced open bodies in front of intrigued audiences. In 1614, class graduated from Leiden with his doctorate in medicine, after which he returned to his home city of Amsterdam and started up his own practice. Klaas was nothing if not ambitious, and throughout his life he consistently strove to push his way higher up the social strata. Despite this, in 1617 he married a woman named Eva van der Fuch, against the wishes of his family who had perceived her as being beneath him socially. However, according to Dutch journalist Gert Muck, Klaas was a little too, quote, beguiled by her beauty, end quote, so he decided to marry Eva anyway. No doubt owing somewhat to his being beguiled by her beauty, the couple went on to have five children together and moved houses to various trendy neighbourhoods across Amsterdam. Eventually they settled though on the Kaisersgracht in 1621. In this time period, houses in Amsterdam did not have numbers, so to distinguish his place from the others and to make it recognisable, the enterprising doctor hung a large wooden sign on the front of his house in the shape of a tulip. This was a time when the tulip was still an expensive and relatively rare flower, which was in the process of becoming very fashionable in the Netherlands indeed, so it was the perfect symbolic choice for this doctor who had high pretensions on himself. Perhaps he was as equally beguiled by the beauty of the tulip as he was his wife, because he changed his name as well from the decidedly common class Peter Zone to the much more respectable Nicholas Tulp and would use the symbol of a tulip on his personal seal. We've been trying to think of what a 21st century equivalent to this might be, and we have decided that it would be kind of similar to hanging a trendy e-bike, like a Van Moof, on the front of your house, and then calling yourself Mr. Van Moof. In 1622, Tulp became a permanent member of the Vroedschap, or Municipal Council, of Amsterdam, and would remain heavily involved in politics, both at a civic level and a national level, for the next 50 years of his life. As a city administrator, he held various positions, including alderman, magistrate, city treasurer, and four times being appointed as mayor, the highest possible municipal office in Amsterdam. His life coincided with the time period in which the Dutch Republic was at its absolute peak in terms of prosperity, and Amsterdam, its capital, was arguably the richest and most important commercial city in Europe. Tulp was a staunch Calvinist, however, and perhaps his most remembered act in local politics was to introduce a sumptuary law in 1655, which banned wedding feasts from having over 50 guests and going for longer than two days. I guess it's not a new thing having a mayor of Amsterdam who just doesn't enjoy people having fun in their city. He also deeply disdained the recklessness displayed during the tulip mania, which we spoke about earlier. 
Around the time that it broke out, Tulp removed the wooden tulip from the front of his house and instead replaced it with two phrases, walk with God and seek eternal life. I'm sure Van Moof riders have been replacing their uselessly broken e-bikes recently with similar religious slogans. Despite his foray into politics, Nicholas Tulp was first and foremost a man of medicine, and it was for this part of his career that he is most widely known around the world still to this day. His doctor's practice was incredibly successful, and Tulp was widely sought after. He was shocked by what contemporary healers, who he saw as quacks, were offering as treatment for sick people in Amsterdam. In 1635, a particularly nasty outbreak of plague hit Amsterdam, which raged over the next two years. In 1636 alone, roughly 17,000 people, or about 15% of the population of the city, died of bubonic plague. Pharmacists would slap together any old concoction and sell it as anti-plague medicine, enriching themselves but offering no help to the sick at all. Tulp led a group of doctors to compile the so-called Pharmacopoeia Amstelrodamensis, a legally binding set of rules which governed medical practice within Amsterdam, such as what provisions pharmacies must have in stock and how to create various medicines. He then spearheaded the creation of the Collegium Medicum, which was responsible for ensuring that these guidelines were complied with. Another book for which Nicholas Tulp would be long remembered was his 1641 publication Observationes Medicae, or as it is often widely known, The Book of Monsters. In this book, Tulp describes many dozens of observations he made throughout his medical career, with the intent of passing his experiences on to the next generation of physicians. The book is richly illustrated, and it contains observations of uncommon medical conditions, such as hyperhidrosis, or excessive sweating, spina bifida, hydrocephalus, conjoined twins, epilepsy, beriberi and diphtheria, as well as the first observations of exotic animals, such as a narwhal, and the first ever known western drawing of a chimpanzee, which he confusingly calls an orangutan. This book was such a hit that it was reprinted six more times over the next hundred years. Tulp wrote his book in Latin, not only because it was the language of the intelligentsia, but he also didn't want regular people reading it and then erroneously self-diagnosing themselves. I wonder what he would have made of Dr. Google today. At least some of this wariness must have come from perhaps the most famous case which he relates in his book, that of a man named Jan de Dote. The story is a detailed description of a man performing surgery on himself. It begins with him sending his wife away to the fish market without telling her what he's about to do before removing a bladder stone the size of a chicken's egg from himself, by himself, with a knife and a little bit of help from his brother-in-law, who probably had a lot of explaining to do to his sister when she came back from the fish market. We will spare you the most graphic parts of the description, but I will share this last bit in the words of Tulp himself. Quote, but this stone weighing four ounces and the size of a hen's egg was a wonder how it came out with the help of one hand, without the proper tools, and then from the patient himself, whose greatest help was courage and impatience embedded in a truly impenetrable faith which caused a brave deed as none other. So was he no less than those whose deeds are related in the old scriptures. Sometimes daring helps when reason doesn't. End quote. Nicholas Tulp's most enduring legacy, however, lies in the fact that he was the subject of a painting which catapulted a young artist in Amsterdam named 
Rembrandt van Rijn into superstardom. In 1628, Tulp had been elected prelector or lecturer of the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons. Once a year, the Amsterdam Guild of Surgeons would perform public dissections on recently executed criminals. So in his new position, Tulp would follow in the footsteps of his teacher from Leiden, Peter Pau, and perform these dissections to curious audiences. What had begun as a teaching tool for students had turned into a great public event, to which visitors could buy a ticket and a special theatre was created to host the actual thing in the St. Antonis Port, or as it is also known, De Vach, which still stands on Amsterdam's Newmarked Square. In 1632, the Guild of Surgeons commissioned Rembrandt to paint the scene. What he produced, creatively titled The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, shows Tulp in his prime. A group of seven observers crowd around him as he stands authoritatively in black clothes, wearing a black hat next to a cadaver which has had its left arm sliced open. Tulp uses forceps in his right hand to pull tendons in the cadaver's arm and holds his left hand in such a way as to show the corresponding movement on his own body. As Dr. Barado Di Matteo wrote in his essay, Nicholas Tulp, the overshadowed subject in the anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp. Quote, This careful attention to detail makes the painting more than just a static portrait of important persons in a grand surrounding, but truly a snapshot of a real teaching moment between an experienced anatomist and interested attendants. End quote. Today, this painting can be found in The Hague at the Murrits House. It is widely seen as one of Rembrandt's first masterpieces and it is still used to teach medical students at universities to this day. Torp died in 1674 at the ripe old age of 81, and was buried in a prestigious location in the Newark Kerk in Amsterdam. He was so intrinsic to the development of medical practices and our understanding of the human body that there has even been a body part named after him, the iliacical valve, or as it is known, Torp's valve a sphincter muscle which connects the large and small intestines. So, the result of everything we've spoken about today, from the arrival of tulips from the east to the growth of interests in natural sciences fueled by exotic goods, to the love and care of leafhebbers and the work of Carolus Clusius in both sharing and cultivating knowledge and passion for the flowers, to their popularity colliding with the burgeoning onset of modern capitalism, to the extent that tulips came to represent so much about being a sophisticated modern man of stature, so much so that Klaus Peterson made a fateful decision over 400 years ago to change his name to Nicholas Tulp. Due to all of that, we can all confidently say that there's a little Dutch tulip inside each and every one of us. A sphinctery little Dutch tulip. Connecting our large intestine to our little one. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. 